2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: It's summertime, and even though many of us no longer have school holidays, it still feels like a time to sink into
3: books. It's like kind of injecting pure entertainment chapter after chapter.
0: That's why today we are bringing you the best of the best, our top three fiction and our top three non-fiction books published this year in the Times and Sunday Times 100 long list. Some will sweep you up in the storytelling, others will tell you things you never knew you needed to know.
3: The Beatles wanted to make a Lord of the Rings movie. They wanted Stanley Kubrick to make it. I think Paul was going to play Frodo. John Lennon was going to play Gollum.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times. I'm Stig Abel, in covering for Manveen. Today, what to read this summer. In the Times building, there is a small room tucked away in a hidden corner. It's filled with books, stacks and stacks of them. Colourful, teetering. And there I
3: went to meet two people with pretty enviable jobs. I'm Robbie Millen. I'm the literary editor of the Times.
2: And I'm Andrew Holgate. I'm the literary editor of the Sunday
3: Times. So the literary editor job sounds lovely. Is it lovely, Robbie? No, I'm actually going to agree with Andrew there. We like to disagree about some things, usually the kind of the quality of Hilary Mantel's prose. Oh, should we get on? We can get on to that later. No, let's (laughs) not get on to that. But no, I I feel very lucky to have it. It is one of the best jobs. It's like having a library, a constantly updating library at, at hand all the time. So if you ever someone mentions a book you can pick it up and give it a 20-page read and think, ah, this is fantastic, or, eh, cast it aside. Uh, and do you like, Andrew, the fact that you can
0: back a book? Do you like championing I books?
2: I absolutely love it. I, it's the, it is the biggest thrill of the whole job, actually. So um, one of the books we're going to talk about soon, Meg Mason's uh, Sorrow and Bliss, our critics went completely mad about it. And so we were able to give it uh, a huge amount of space, do lots of stuff around it. And it got to number six, I think, that weekend in the Amazon bestseller list. And that's, uh, you feel, you feel you've done that? Yeah, it's essentially, yeah. Uh,
0: and Robbie, the Times is occasionally known for going after books as well. Is that is that, is that an important thing? Because some people believe everything should be cosy, you know, b- books are all beautiful things and everyone's tried their
3: hardest and therefore you shouldn't really be too mean about them. You know, occasionally you, you have to shame the publishers because sometimes they do produce terrible books. They're essentially like a herd. They kind of all chase the same thing. So you think, do we really need this 20th book about wild swimming? So occasionally you have to say, no more. But then occasionally they just uh, publish just... Terrible, terrible books that someone in the organisation should have said no. no. Well, let's not get into Worldsroom because I'll be thoroughly agreeing with you <laughs>
0: on that. It's a blight on broadcasting as well. Let's talk about this list then. How did you create the list? How did you get to 100,
2: Andrew? Some people think that we read every single book. Obviously, we don't. We have to rely on our critics. So this is going through the list and seeing which books our critics particularly loved. There will be some input from both of us who would have read a lot of the books, but it's books that are published either in hardback or paperback this first half. And it's books that we think would be good for some reading. There are some tough reads in here. Uh, there's one by Sam Bias, which I think you have to have a strong stomach for the, for that, <laughs> but a novel. But generally, it's books to give pleasure
0: are these beach books we're talking about here robbie are these books that you want to read uncomfortably lying down with sand entering your crevices or maybe you're <laughs> not even going to get to the beach at all this year so maybe it's a different category altogether
3: no, no i think we're, we're using it in a very kind of loose way um because otherwise beach trees do kind of sort of you assume it's kind of some kind of flim flam although i hope that there is a bit of kind of light flim flam li-
2: well there are light books yes There's nothing wrong with flim- <laughs> <laughs> life is full of flim flam
3: <laughs> But do you, know, do you know, one of my favourite beach reads in that I read it on a beach was Vasily Grossman's um, Life and Fate, oh, yeah. which obviously takes you to Stalingrad, Shameless. all the misery of those Shameless. times. I can't believe you're, you're pulling out a Russian <laughs> brick
0: book as your beach that read. That is yeah. utter talk. Yeah.
3: I find it difficult
0: <laughs> when I took all the proofs to be original
3: French that I did. And no, but I was <laughs> lying by a Greek pool and I, I, was, I, I was in the coldness of, the, of sort of the Russian steppes Do you want to outdo him there, no. No, I'm
2: we've done an additional uh, list for Sunday of 14 books, uh, classic books I can almost... Almost guarantee that you'll will give you pleasure. We'll give us a couple
0: of those. What was your, what well,
2: one saying? will be Age of Innocence by uh no. Edith Wharton. I've never met anyone who's not enjoyed it. Um, and also Sons and Lovers by D.H. Lawrence again, I've never met anyone who who hasn't loved that. Both completely engrossing books. I'm slightly nervous about Sons and Lovers because I read <laughs> that once when I was about 19, but I'm pretty sure we'll it will we'll we'll have, have aged, aged well. well. I'm always terrified
0: when I go on holiday of not having enough books and I don't have yeah. a Kindle, I don't really want a Kindle. So, what I do is I always carry about nine, yes, books for a I week's do holiday. as well.
2: Exactly the same as you. I always take far too many books to cover every single eventuality, just in case, um, and every single mood. Or you could just
3: take giant Russian books and then you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you never run out then, do you? The year before last, when there was still a holiday, I did take Dostoevsky's The Idiots on holiday. Oh, and really? I found actually, no. Number three on the non fiction
0: list is Putin's People How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took On the West by Catherine Belton.
2: This book is a scathing attack on Russian corruption. Uh, So scathing, in fact, that she is in trouble because she is being sued by various members of Putin's inner circle. And it's a very, very serious uh, situation. But she's a really dedicated uh, journalist and she's written a very, very strong book.
3: If you want to sort of understand the, the modern world around us, this is it's an extraordinary piece of reportage, the amount of years of research. This does feel definitive, and it takes you from a Putin's early day as a kind of KGB spy in Dresden in the 80s, and you realize what a kind of almost complete non-entity he was and how he was groomed into power. So, you know... You think this man's been Prime Minister or President of Russia for 22 years. And this just explains how this uh, a small cadre of KGB officers, when the chaos of the Soviet Union collapsing, they made some really strategic decisions, created almost like a slush fund of money to keep their networks alive. So... While chaos was uh, engulfing the old Soviet Union, they were ready to take power and they've done a good job (laughs) of maintaining power.
0: And in some ways, it's one of the issues of the age. I mean, we constantly, I find this on the radio, you're talking about Putin, how he got into power, how he clings on to power. And whenever there is some obscene act globally, which leads back to Putin, there's the hand wringing, there's the commenting in the West, but nothing ever seems to happen and he sails on. Uh, onwards, doesn't he?
3: Well, I think this is one of the points of the book: the extent to which uh, Western banks and financial institutions have gone along with basically kind of state-mandated theft in Russia. Um, there's a lot of people in the West, lawyers and PR companies as well as banks, that are sort of directly benefiting from this kind of current sort of kleptocratic regime. This is not a bee tree that's going to cheer you up. You're vain. On your forehead, be throbbing with rage by the end of it. But sometimes you need that.
0: Nonfiction book two, one, two,
2: three, four The Beatles in Time by Craig Brown. We all know about Craig Brown. He's a wonderful writer. He sort of had a, he had a first go at this book when he did his book on Princess Margaret, um, which was a series of snapshots of her. 99 and, Glimpses. 99 I mean. Glimpses, even. And this is very much the same um, about the Beatles. So I think there are 100 sort of mini chapters on them. Some of it is very funny. Some of it is very poignant. There's a bit where uh, quite early on, for instance, where he goes on a tour both Lennon and McCartney's house. He goes on some sort of ridiculous tourist uh, trail around their houses. So he approaches them in a lot of different ways and makes it feel very very fresh.
0: He almost should have been awarded a prize for bravery of writing a Beatles book. I mean it's an overwritten area isn't it Robbie? This could have been awful and pointless because it's so well documented and to find a new way at it is quite an achievement.
3: Oh yeah I mean this is really a good beach book because you can sort of read a chapter between mojitos. It doesn't require a great deal of concentration. It's, it's like kind of injecting pure entertainment, chapter after chapter. and I, I discovered all sorts of things in it. I hadn't realised that the Beatles wanted to make a Lord of the Rings movie. So they'd actually bought options to make it. They wanted Stanley Kubrick to make it. I think Paul was going to play Frodo. John Lennon was going to play Gollum. But J.R. Tolkien hated their music. So he put a kibosh on it. Thank so, God,
0: thank God in a way. <laughs> that sounds like a bit of a, a sort of a 60s drug thing, isn't it? <laughs> McCartney's Frodo's Kubrick directed I'm not sure.
3: Could the world oh, have handled And that? George Harrison as Gandalf. Move aside Ian McKellen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. George Harrison's in town.
0: I've, I've read bits of it and it is, it's universally loved. Not all of the books you'll choose in this list will have beautiful writing in them. And he's a, you have great confidence in Craig Brown. Yes. He knows how to turn a phrase, doesn't
2: he? absolutely it? does, yeah.
0: Number one in the non-fiction list, Sleeping Beauties and Other Stories of Mystery Illnesses by Suzanne O'Sullivan.
3: facial expressions inadvertently reveal my opinion to others, even when I don't intend it. It doesn't seem a stretch, therefore, to suggest this embodiment of a person's inner world as the potential to extend into illness. That the body is the mouthpiece of the mind seems self-evident to me, but I have the sense that not everybody feels the connection between bodily changes and the contents of their thoughts as vividly as I do. I really love this book. Uh, So Susanna Sullivan, she's a, a hospital neurologist, So she knows what she writes. And it's basically about uh, what we might call psychosomatic illnesses. I think the the more technical term is functional neurological disorders, which sounds a little bit uh, dreary. But it's really about how your mind can make you sick. This is basically like a travel log of sickness, because she travels to loads of different places to find out these various examples of psychosomatic disorders. So, for instance, in Sweden, hence the title Sleeping Beauties, there was this strange occurrence of asylum seeker children falling to sleep for months, even years on end. It's called resignation syndrome. Their life is so depressing, they put themselves to sleep. And the the only known cure, and it sounds ludicrous, is when their parents get a successful asylum application and then they slowly wake up. Doctors can't find the physical cause. So this is, we think, just one of those moments when the mind, in order to cope with extreme situation, um, creates these kind of physical symptoms. In Colombia in, I think, 2016, there was this mass outbreak of, um, I think what we would call hysteria amongst teenage girls. They'd all had the HPV vaccine. And the end of the first day of all these vaccinations, 50 of them had been hospitalised. Some of them ended up in wheelchairs. And it's really just a reminder of how little we know about how our mind works and the mysterious things it can do to us. I mean, it's a very compassionate book because it'd be easy to say, well, these people are fakers, they're making it up. Um, But she shows that actually you have no control over what your mind is doing. And it sounds a bit like
0: a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel or something like that. When you're reading a lot of nonfiction, has it become permeated with fictional technique do you think is that the way that fiction non-fiction has gone because it seems to there's two possibilities there's the, sort of the, the fictionalization the novelization of scene setting there's also the introduction of the
2: author often the eye of, yes there's a lot in, of that not non-fiction are you seeing any themes with all this a biography in particular has has definitely moved away from the thudding he was born on he died on and here is every single thing he did in
3: between done there's a lot more in I was a linear fashion. there's a lot more I was searching through yeah. the attic and I so came across. So there's
2: quite a lot of the authors themselves now introduced. There's quite a lot of uh, snapshots, very much in the way of Craig Brown. Of course, we've had an explosion of memoir uh, in the last five or six years. You know, everyone wants to write uh, a novel. Your first novel is always about yourself. These people have made the sensible decision to do it as non-fiction rather than as fiction.
0: Speaking of fiction, we'll be moving on to look at the fiction top three. But first, a message.
1: Hi, Poppy Damon here the editor of the Stories of Our Times podcast.
0: The news, the views, the analysis, the investigations, the exclusives, the interviews, and the business. Get more of The Times and The Sunday Times for less with 50% off a digital subscription for six months. Sale now on, and it ends June 29th. Subscribe today at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times. Andrew Holgate, Literary Editor of the Sunday Times, kicked off our discussion about The Passenger by Ulrich Alexander Boschwitz, the number three book in our fiction list, although he did have a confession to make.
2: Good, Neither of us have actually read this, so there's total transparency. <laughs> but our reviewer, David Mills, absolutely adored it. This book was actually published, first published in 1939, by a Jewish-German writer, Ulrich Alexander Boschwitz, and it's a, it's a sort of a Bacchinesque, Um, 39 Steps Tale about a Jewish man on the run inside Germany taking one train after another and getting a sort of precarious sense of freedom as he moves from one place to another but constantly feeling as though he's just about to be nabbed. And it was written by Boschwitz just after Kristallnacht, in a few weeks just after Kristallnacht. He then escaped Germany. He went to Australia after having been in England. On the way back in 1942, sadly, his um, ship was sunk and he died. But David Mills, who's read Hans Vellade's Alone in Berlin, and Suite Francaise by Irene nemorowski both of which are rediscovered novels from the Second World War just before, he says this is better
3: than both of them.
0: I love John Buckham deeply, and so the idea of a bit of plot, I like it quite a, is, is, This
3: is a genre novel, is it? Yes, it's a sort of a thriller. I am actually looking forward to reading this, because I love those kind of Eric Ambler novels from the very late 30s, early 40s, things like Journey into Fear, which I think would have been published at the same time, or The Mask of Dimitrios, The, the Rise of Nazism, Being Caught... You Know in real time, yeah. I think, does add a, a real kind of extra sort of sharp note to, yeah, to the thrillers. Joseph
0: Roth, I, I suppose, a bit. we're getting more literary
2: there. When we well, you can take that Roth. to the beach sit alongside Robbie. Oh, <laughs> uh, Robbie, will take, you ever <laughs> take any <laughs> Joseph Roth to the beach? I have actually, have you? <laughs>
3: yeah. he's very good. He? he is excellent, excellent. No, no, Andrew, no, it's no. not my
2: thing. I have <laughs> to confess, I've tried three or four times. Oh, no, I've tried oh, the Rodetsky Marsh
3: with a Redetsky Marsh. I've tried the Rodetsky Marsh, I know
2: you know, there are certain books we get to about page four. 45, and you think, I'm just not going to make this. And also, it's you, not
0: them, and you are just got to say, my job isn't to beat my head about this. Yeah, just I think so. I think so.
2: I, I would recommend to anyone having problems with reading a book, put it aside. Put it aside Enjoy yourself. It,
3: yes. Don't feel a sense yes. of duty.
0: Don't, don't just read to show off. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, honestly, there's a good 30-page rule if, if, if it's not caught you in the first Although 30 pages. I
2: would have to say uh, for that, uh, 100 Years of Solitude, for instance, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, <laughs> that takes 45 pages and you think, what on earth is going on here? And then suddenly you are completely I'm up, a reading
0: exactly the right age I read that when I was sort of 15 I just suddenly thought why aren't all books magical realist books why aren't they all like this why aren't all these giant quilts appearing and stuff like
2: that again that's another book I'm, I'm slightly nervous about going back to but I th- I'm sure it will hold up
3: Patrick asked me if I would consider making friends in Oxford. Even if I didn't want to, and I was only doing it for him, he didn't mind. He just didn't want me to start hating it too soon. He said, at least until we've unloaded the car. He said, you don't have to get a job straight away either. I said, there weren't any jobs anyway. I'd already looked. Well, in that case, it makes sense to focus on the friends thing and maybe you could think about doing something else work-wise if you wanted to, or I don't know, do a master's. In what? In something. I screenshotted a picture of Kate Moss in a faux coat, ashing a cigarette into her hotel topiary and said, I'm thinking about retraining as a prostitute. In the middle of overtaking a van, Patrick shot me a look. Okay, first, that term isn't used
1: anymore. And second, you know this house is in a cul-de-sac. There won't be the foot traffic.
0: Meg Mason clinched the silver spot in our top three fiction books with her novel, Sorrow and Bliss. And when it comes to actually reading books, it's a case of all or nothing with our literary editors.
3: Well, I've read this. So have I. Oh, <laughs> oh good. Good, <laughs> good. Good, good, good. Go on, Robbie, you, you, you start. Someone sort of described this as uh, Fleabag meets Patrick Melrose. Quite a good description of it, actually. Yeah, usually I sneer at those kind of, it's X meets Y, because usually it's, no, nothing's like Tolstoy meets Fifty Shades or whatever. Um, but this actually gives a good flavour of it, because like the Patrick Melrose novels, it's about a rackety, quite posh family, with all their kind of sorrows, and it's got that kind of witty, sharp tone that um, Edward St Auburn has in those Patrick Melrose novels, and it's also got that flea bag tone because it's all about a relationship between two sisters, one of whom's a bit flaky—well, more than flaky. She suffers from some kind of mental illness that's never made clear, but it is actually very funny because, again, it, we're talking about beach reads, and you kind of think, "Do I really want to read a novel about depression on the beach?" And you think, "Yes." <laughs> This is what fiction's for, because it's funny, sharp, really well observed. Um, I can't think of anything else to say. No,
2: you're right. Did it kind of
0: come right. from
2: nowhere? I mean, we, we sort really of.
3: Expect sort it. of. Um, it it just—I mean, you know—every
2: publisher jumps up and down about their lead books, and they were jumping up and down about this. But earlier in the year, I hadn't really clocked it at all, and it, it's in the bestsellers uh, this weekend. Actually, I would thoroughly recommend it. It manages its—it's its quite depressing subject matter really astutely, it's not laugh out loud funny, but there is a wry, funny tone to it and it's it's actually very warm and um, you're completely on the side of this rather completely dysfunctional character who is struggling yeah. with two husbands, one of whom is rather sympathetic and the other whom is a complete ogre.
3: Well, this is one of the funniest descriptions of someone. Her first husband she describes how he had a room for his drum kit with a mirror in front of it. And you kind of think, what a devastating cri- criticism of someone, that they drum in the mirror so they can see themselves. She I totally write- believe it, can't
2: you? Yes. She writes very well <laughs> as well. And she, she's clearly very, very astute. There, yeah. are, there are perceptions about people and about situations that you think, oh, yeah, that's absolutely bang on. I'd thoroughly recommend it. And uh, for your
0: number one, you've gone for a, a plucky little underdog that you want to give attention to. <laughs> so well done to you both for this. Uh, it's important to, I think, give attention to people who've been neglected by the canon uh, over the
2: years. Uh, well, the thing to say about this, the thing to say it's not, about it's not this, very brave
3: of us, no, is no, it? No.
0: Joking aside, Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro has earned its place in our fiction top spot. Andrew Holgate was keen
2: to explain why. The thing to say about oh. this book is that there is a curse of the Nobel, which is that anyone who wins the Nobel Prize for Literature. Never writes Another Good Book. And this is Kazuo Ishiguro's first novel since uh, winning the Nobel. And it's a very, very good book. It's a book about an AI machine, a robot essentially, with some form of sentience who is learning about the world and who is given uh, as a companion to an ill young girl And it manages to have lots of very intelligent things to say about sentience and about being human and not being a human. More so than Ian McEwan did, perhaps. Much more, much more. The thing about Ishiguro as well is that he thinks things through. It's thoroughly realistic. It's set uh, quite near future. And it's it's beautifully done. If there was an author who had the best endings, I think uh, Ishiguro would be up there, actually. And this one... It has the most poignant ending about a robot and you think how has he done that whatever
0: he may or may not be he's not a predictable novelist you can't read his previous one and think well the next one he's going to do is going to be about an ai robot teaching a, a girl it's not, it, each one of his books seems to me to, to sort
3: of almost come from nowhere each time well i like the fact he's willing to raid the the, the, the dressing up box of genres yeah. so this one you can see well, he's drawn a little bit on sci-fi he's you know obviously it's not space algae or anything like that um, Likewise, the buried giant. He was willing to sort of draw on a bit of fantasy. He's written things which sort of almost like not quite chase thrillers, but thrillerish. He's written one of the most beloved novels of the 20th century, potentially as well. Yes, yeah. um, remains of the day. Of the day. Yeah. I
0: mean, people will people will say remains of the day. people will put that on a list, won't they? Of, of top 20. Yeah. Yeah. The
2: two people. most successful novels he's written are *The Remains of the Day* and *Never Never Let Me Go*. Yeah. Uh, Never Let Me Go is about a, a, a bunch of students who are waiting to be farmed, essentially. Yeah. And this book is very much an amalgam of those two Absolutely, books. yeah. And uh, it really is. Because, so, so Clara is a sort of a person who's waiting round on other people, very much like in Remains of the Day. Uh, but there are sort of science fiction elements to it as well. And it's extraordinary.
1: When we were new, we used to worry that because we often couldn't see the sun from mid-store, we'd grow weaker and weaker. Boy AF Rex who was
0: alongside us then, told us there was nothing to worry about, that the sun had
1: ways of reaching us wherever we were.
2: It's a very, very good book. Lots of different levels. And and just as a read, actually, I mean, there, there are things that will puzzle you in the book because Clara is trying to work out the world and some of the ways she works out the world are very puzzling. But... uh I think it'll make you think, and it—it's—it's—it's uh, it's very poignant.
3: It's one of those novels you pick it up and you immediately think. Uh... I'm in safe hands here. Yeah, really. Yeah, straight away. And that's really important, isn't it? Because
0: there's nothing worse than the stub toe when you sort of that sentence six, yeah. and you think, "Oh God!" And then you're, and, you're on edge. And I think it point.
2: passes the, uh, the the Robbie Millen uh, Valerie Grossman test of of, of <laughs> you being able to lie on the beach with a book that is setting out to impress other people and actually enjoy it at the same isn't time.
0: Really? Oh, I'm, I'm, you can ask for no more <laughs> no. when it comes to, when it comes to your beach read. Should we talk about that reading over the last fifteen months? Because I suspect for some people, I probably count myself in this. Reading has been really very important as an as an escape. I found I've got into genre fiction even more. Mm, I found the, the 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 how encouraging and, and consoling it is to read things with a clear plot, have a bit, which have an ending, which are resolved. Yeah. Has your reading changed both of you over the last fifteen months,
3: personally rather than professionally? Yep, yeah, definitely. I couldn't get enough dystopia. You know, it was depressing outside. I thought let's make it depressing in the house by reading as many dystopian novels. So I went through a kind of two or three month phase when I was just reading sort of mid 20th century British dystopian novels. So things like John Christopher's um, The Death of Grass about some virus wiping out all the grass. and People start starving and turning against each other. And then Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham. I mean, they've... Aged a little bit, the dialogue's a bit creaky and um, um, probably the characterisation of women, eh, not much effort was put in. But they're cracking stories about what happens when society breaks down. And then J.G. Ballard, loads of J.G. Ballard, brilliant stuff. High Rise was one of the um, books I read. I just thought, yes, I, I just want to read about people turning on each other, uh, but written with this immense, fertile imagination. Probably shouldn't explore too much uh, the psychology behind that, role, but, 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 but commendable honesty
2: there. I, I, had a di- I had a disastrous 2020. I almost stopped reading, actually. Don't tell my editor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I all right, I, all I kept, reading, but I'm all right. I kept <laughs> starting books and just thinking, oh, do you know what? This uh, life's too short. So I actually had the completely obverse of you. You know, working at home on a screen for ten or eleven hours a day, and then going to a book afterwards, it, it, it just became too much. And then in the autumn uh, last year, I just drew breath, start again, to write and thought new year and I've I've sort of um, I've raced through books this year and I've enjoyed a huge amount
0: just finally before you go then uh, any tips for reading lots of books uh, over the summer anything you could do don't go on a beach I would say
3: because it's not a good place no. to no, read books no it's not it's not find somewhere shady
2: relax and enjoy what you're reading don't try and rush through them yeah
3: I think also be brutal you know if, yeah. if, if the book does not spark joy as Mary Kondo says chuck it out
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Stig Abel, and my guests, Robbie Millen and Andrew Holgate, literary editor at The Times and The Sunday Times, respectively. You can read more of their work at thetimes.co.uk or, of course, in print, and you can catch me every Monday to Thursday from 6 o'clock in the morning on Times Radio Breakfast. The producers were Brenna Daldorf and Marilyn Rust. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by John Nichols if you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do drop us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you next time.
1: Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history.
2: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.